0: Hi there, I'm Robin Anir and this is my podcast Nothing on TV in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous and free digital repository of historical newsprint to bring news stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. I had a tooth pulled out today so if I sound a bit different that'll be why. And in other news the air has finally cleared here in my Verland Heights studio after a rat died in the wall space a few weeks ago. But enough of that. Let's go back in time. I've got a story for you this time, the germ of which has lurked in the intestinal flora of successive hard drives of mine for maybe 15 years. It first caught my interest one day when I was going cross-eyed, scrolling through newspapers on a squeaky, crank-handled microfilm reader at the State Library of Victoria. From time to time, I've gleaned more on this subject, either by accident or because I've gone looking, and now, at last, I get to string it together. The story harks back to the same period, or thereabouts, as the picture show panic which you heard about in the last episode. Here's where it starts, or at least where it started for me. It's a letter to the editor, headed hatpins, on page 14 of the Melbourne Argus of August 9th, 1911. "'Sir, when standing at the Spencer Street station on Wednesday, "'a lady turned her head round suddenly "'and her hat-pin entered my eyelid. "'She did not even apologise or express regret "'at the trouble her hat-pin had caused. "'It is high time that action was taken "'to put an end to this dangerous practice of women, "'yours, etc., a sufferer. "'This dangerous practice of women, "'poking men in the eyes with hat-pins, "'and not just in the eye.' In the August two days later, a letter-writer calling himself another sufferer fully sympathised with the first. A fortnight ago, he wrote, when going through the turnstiles at a suburban railway station, I was violently harpooned in the nose with a hat-pin, and narrowly escaped getting it in the eye. Worse, I got a look of anger and indignation from the wearer that plainly rebuked me for getting my nose in the way. I neither expected... Nor received an apology. While it wasn't unusual for people to take umbrage at women's fashions, usually it was a case of outraged sensibilities, not actual physical harm. Fifty years or so earlier, it's true, you'd have heard a fair bit of grumbling about the inconvenience and injury it would have been footpath hogging and tripping hazards mainly caused to third parties by the super wide crinoline skirts. There was even a suggestion that magnetic interference from iron hooped crinolines worn by women who promenaded too close to the meteorological observatory on Melbourne's Flagstaff Hill, may have put out of whack compasses that would be carried by Burke and Wills on their doomed expedition north. Fashion victims, eh? Generally, though, women's fashions caused only mild bruising to standards of public decency. In 1911, there was some huffing and puffing on that score over the latest thing, the harem skirt. What made the skirt so disgraceful, apparently, was that it was actually hair and pants, divided from the knee down and gathered in tight at each ankle. Before that, it had been the so-called scavenger skirt, an abomination that trailed at the back, sweeping up dirt and gutter slops. Women's hats had been raising public ire since 1906 or seven, when the Merry Widow hat came into fashion. Inspired by a costume worn in the operetta of that name, the Merry Widow looked Like a sea going vessel, piled up with ostrich feathers or flowers or fruit or all three, and measuring nearly two feet, that's say 60 centimetres, brim to brim. Amazingly, the crown of the hat, that's the part that's meant to fit firmly on the head, accounted for almost half that diameter. So it would have sat on most heads like a stockpot with an inch or more to spare all round. Except that fashionable heads also wore a Gibson girl do. The biggest of big hair, the bob or shingle, was still fifteen years in the future. So most women had a mass of hair to work with, which they then foofed and piled up, padding it out with hair pieces as well as rats. Those were pads made out of matted hair. The big hair, I think, probably preempted and necessitated those big hats. So yes, the hair did fill the hat's capacious crown, but none too securely. What with all that padding and artifice, plus the weight of the brim. To say nothing of the destabilizing influence of the wind or the jostle aboard a crowded tram, well, something was needed to anchor hat to head. That something was a hat pin. Now, the unsteady dynamics of the Gibson Girl, Mary Widow combo required a hat pin not just to skewer or pin hair to hat, but to act as a girder underpinning the whole edifice. That called for a hat pin at least as long as the crown of the hat was wide and usually not just one of them, but two or three or even more. The standard hat pin sold in the shops at that time was at least a foot long, call it 30 centimetres, of which an inch or more would usually protrude from the crown of the hat. Which brings us back to the point made by our sufferer in his letter to the editor of the Argus. Literally to the point, because that inch or two of protruding hat pin was invariably the pointy end. The real problem came around 1909, when hats, though still big, began to moderate in size, but the hat pins didn't, so that the inch or so of protruding pin became more like three inches, that's seven and a half centimetres. Ouch! In winter, when hats with narrower brims were worn, the brazen hat pin points became especially hazardous, particularly to those whose faces were at hat height, which is to say, men In another letter to the Melbourne Argus, a correspondent deplored the now always present danger of the deadly hatpin. He wrote, Any day one of our dear ones may be maimed by them. The law forbids officers wearing spurs in the streets, yet allows women to wear unguarded swords in their hats, to the danger, perhaps death, of anyone. And here's just a sample of headlines from Australian newspapers between 1909 and 1914. Besides the deadly hatpin, there was the hatpin demon, the hatpin pest, the hatpin danger, lethal hatpins, monster hatpins, the hatpin habit, the hatpin fiend, the hatpin evil, the obnoxious hatpin, the aggressive hatpin, the unguarded hatpin, the hatpin peril, the murderous hatpin and the hatpin menace from which this podcast takes inspiration. You get the picture. Generally, such headlines led into reports of injuries or even deaths wrought by, and I quote, the criminal carelessness of some thoughtless woman. Often the drama took place aboard a tight-packed tram car where, as we all know, sudden jerks are liable to happen. In Adelaide, a correspondent calling herself Elsie G wrote pretty regularly to the advertiser complaining of the promiscuous crowding on the Marriottville tram, which, she said, affords free and compulsory education regarding the anatomy of the human form. And she went on, Overcrowding, besides being indecent, is rendered absolutely dangerous by scintillating forests of elongated hatpins. Sure enough, damage reports from the Adelaide trams were not at all uncommon, like this one from September, nineteen eleven. A few days ago, a gentleman was traveling in a tram car when a lady standing beside him turned her head sharply, and the protruding end of the pin in her hat made a deep scratch about four inches in length across his right cheek. And you'd hear the same from Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, as we know, as well as wire stories from the distant capitals of Europe and the US. Sometimes, in a rider, you'd read that the victim had later died of blood poisoning. Remember, penicillin was still decades away. In Paris... A woman missed her footing when alighting from a tram and fell headfirst onto the roadway and onto her own hatpin. She was picked up dead, said the report, the pin having penetrated her brain. Less dramatically, two women on an Adelaide tram, one getting on, the other off, entangled their hatpins in each other's veils, and rather than hold up the tram while they unpicked the mess, had to tear their veils to get free. In Melbourne, a Collins Street Eye doctor claimed that nearly 5% of his recent patients have suffered the narrowest escapes from total loss of sight through coming into contact with hatpin points, and some didn't escape. In 1909, a woman standing in front of Foy and Gibson's store in Sydney was poked by a Merry Widow hatpin and lost the sight of her left eye. Warnings to keep your hatpins in would be issued ahead of the Christmas shopping rush. Even so... You read of customers blinded in one eye in the toy department or of lift attendants hospitalised. Wherever crowds formed, hat pins were a problem. In a New York theatre, a hat pin nicked an artery and the victim almost bled to death. At a football match in Richmond in 1912, a child carried in its mother's arms had its face gashed from mouth to ear. Church attendants could be dangerous, especially when kneeling or rising from the pew or passing through the narrow porch. The gangways of boats, skating rinks, watching processions. Ahead of the funeral of Edward VII in 1910, public appeals were issued to the effect that ladies will consult the general convenience by refraining from the use of long hatpins which might prove dangerous to other spectators. After that event, organisers pronounced themselves pleased that only 75 accidents were attributed to the ubiquitous hatpin. Even at the beach you weren't safe. Despite the frequent warnings against the dangerous habit of wearing hats while surf-bathing, said the Sydney Morning Herald, a few ladies still persist in the practice. As a correspondent to that same paper implored, far better for you to spoil your complexion than for you to spoil someone's eyes. If you must wear a hat, tie it on, but don't go in the surf with half a yard of hat pins sticking out as a menace to other bathers. In Montreal, in 1912, a hundred thousand placards bearing the words, Beware, hatpins, were posted on fences, telegraph poles, everywhere it was possible to stick one. For even walking along the street could be hazardous. Hatpins made being seen on Melbourne's fashionable block into something like a blood sport. A mere coquettish turn of the head, said a writer in the Argus, may bring the pin round in a semicircular sweep that requires a good deal of expert dodging to avoid, and makes a promenade of only the block's length, to say the least, adventurous and exciting. And that was in the broad expanse of Collins Street. Sydney, with its comparatively narrow streets, was more inconvenienced than any other city in Australia by the prevailing vagaries of feminine headgear. At least so said the Argus, which took the opportunity, it would take any opportunity, to liken Sydney's premier street to Melbourne's pokiest. Melbourne people have only to imagine what Flinders Lane would be like if it were the principal thoroughfare of the city to understand the perils incidental to a walk along Pitt Street on a fine afternoon. Even away from the crowds, in intimate settings, the hatpin made its mark. A report from the US headlined, A sensational death caused by a hatpin, told of a man who, upon being reunited with his sweetheart, embraced her tightly and was stabbed in the chest by her hatpin, puncturing his lung. And besides causing accidental injury, hatpins were implicated in deliberate acts of violence. More than one husband was found dead with a hatpin through the heart. In The Moonstone Pin, a short story syndicated in newspapers all over Australia, the eponymous pin became a murder weapon with the beautiful heiress Beatrice Brabazon, the prime suspect, though the dastardly Clifford turns out to be the real culprit. Examining the body in a railway carriage, the narrator recognised the head of a moonstone pin in a curious, semi-barbaric setting. A lurch of the train, and before I well knew what I had done, I had drawn forth from the body a long hatpin which must have pierced the heart of the dead man. That was the same method employed by one of the notorious baby farmers of Perth to dispose of infants entrusted to her care. Hat pins were used less lethally against arresting policemen. In Sydney in July 1911, a woman in custody was being taken to a police station when she suddenly drew a pin from her headgear and drove a few inches of it several times into the policeman's arm. That same week, irate at the arrest of a friend, a young woman hat-pinned the arresting constable in the back, and when he turned round, she took a second lunge at him. Luckily, the hat-pin was stopped by a notebook in his breast pocket. Twice, both times in Adelaide, female barricades at footy matches stabbed umpires with their hat-pins. And the same thing happened on a Sydney tram, when a conductor asked a fashionably attired woman for her fare. On picket lines at Broken Hill, hat-pins were carried and used by women supporting striking mine workers, And in London and elsewhere, hatpins featured among the arsenal of weapons employed by suffragettes against police and their horses. In July 1907, the Maitland Daily Mercury ran a report about a woman charged with using indecent language who, upon being sentenced in the Sydney Police Court, aimed her wrath and her hatpin at the policeman whose evidence had convicted her. "'I'll dig your dash-dash eye clean out!' she cried. And taking a long, blue-headed hatpin from her chapeau, she hurled it in the direction of the witness box. Constable Spire, who was seated at the desk before the box, bobbed his head, and the missile fastened in the timber of the bench. The headline of the piece was woman uses hat pin as a spear, which was fair enough in this case, but the press was perhaps over fond of, usually in the name of humour, equating every woman with a pin in her hat to Bodicea. Listen to this from the Sydney Sun. Is the empire of women in danger? The ancient world recognised the big principle that as nations shortened their weapons, they increased their territories. The decadent Persians at Marathon carried spears about 15 yards long. The Romans conquered the world with a short sword. Time was when women's weapon was a short, sweet smile, delivered at close quarters. Now she goes armed with half a dozen hatpins. Does the change represent the serious weakening of the female position, which the analogy of history would seem to suggest? Women wearing hatpins were dreadnoughts, heavily armed cruisers with long-range guns against whose galling fire men were as helpless as unarmed merchant vessels. And it wasn't just the press. The Worker, a leftist newspaper out of Brisbane, reported in 1909 on proceedings in the Illinois State Legislature where a bill was proposed that would prohibit the wearing of dangerous or deadly headgear. This followed terrifying experiences when an army of suffragettes invaded the halls of the State House. Supporting the bill, one representative produced a hat of merry widow dimensions. Look at this bonnet, he said. It is loaded with eighteen pins. That's got to be an exaggeration. Each one as deadly as a Roman spear. Think what it would mean to brush up against this hat in a crowded lift or a tramway car. It would be like being flung against the Macedonian phalanx. Likewise, an alderman of the Chicago City Council, supporting an anti-hatpin ordinance the following year, vowed to wage war relentlessly against long hatpins. He went on, If women like wearing carrots or roosters on their heads, that is an affair of their own. Pause for laughter, I'll bet. But when it comes to wearing swords, they must be stopped. Why, one man complained to me that he was nearly decapitated the other day by the sweep of a scimitar worn in her hat by a beautiful stenographer. The deadly snickersy must be suppressed. And a snickersee, as any devotee of Gilbert and Sullivan could tell you, is a knife. Now to this, women retorted that if a hatpin were a weapon, well, so what?' What other means did they have to defend themselves against the not-infrequent depredations faced at the hands of men? Perth's Daily News, in a report headlined The Hatpin, Women's Weapon of Defence, told of a petition mounted in Chicago in the name of ladies who are obliged, occasionally, to walk home in the night-time. Thousands of us, said the petition, when leaving a tramway car, hold a hatpin in our hand until we are safe indoors. Indeed, newspaper readers would often see accounts of hatpins used in self-defence. For example, confronted by a purse snatcher, a woman in Paris reached up to her hat and drove a hatpin into her assailant's arm, telling him, There is something for you! In Hampshire, a young woman was saved when the hatpin in a tam o shanter deflected a blackguard's bullet, while in Missouri, a hatpin enabled Mrs Thomas Douglas to fight off a charging bull. Courtesy of our old friend the barrier miner out of Broken Hill, came a report carrying the delightful headline, Harem Skirts in Dimboola, Two Women Mobbed, Use Their Hat Pins, which tells you pretty much all you need to know about that. Even the crusty yet eloquent LCG of Adelaide acknowledged the role of the hat pin in preserving a skerrick of modesty on the overcrowded Marriottville tram, into every available space of which... She wrote, a conglomeration of both sexes is jammed and wobbled by the swaying vehicles into a more or less homogeneous mass, save where the Noleme Tangere hatpin causes a transient lacuna. Noleme Tangere, that's Latin for don't touch me, a motto that might well serve as an alternative title for this episode. One newspaper of the time reckoned it takes a brave man to get close to a girl with a modern hatpin. Brave or not, Alfred Joyce of West Melbourne seems to have done just that, resulting in an episode that was reported nationwide in December 1907. The report was short but suggestive. Joyce, it said, attended the Melbourne Hospital to have a somewhat lengthy piece of hatpin extracted from his breast. The pin was taken out and the only information that Joyce would give concerning its presence there was that he had been skylarking. Attempts to elicit further details from Joyce went nowhere, which tells me he probably got what he deserved. Chicago's anti-hatpin ordinance passed in early 1910 seems to have been the world's first, although the New York State Legislature had attempted in 1907 to introduce a bill limiting the length of hatpins. Women's rights protested had successfully opposed that assault on women's one defensive weapon, but it turned out in America, Europe and Australia that measures to regulate hatpins would be more easily introduced and enforced as municipal bylaws. Chicago's ordinance was hailed as the final disarmament of women. It decreed that no person, while in the public streets or in an elevated car or public elevator or other public place, shall wear any hatpin, the exposed point whereof shall protrude more than half an inch beyond the crown of the hat. Other US cities followed Chicago's lead, and Berlin in 1911 was the first city in Europe, first of many, to prosecute the wearers of long hat pins. How on earth was a fashionable woman meant to secure her hat? Another letter writer to the Argus suggested that hat pin wearers employ a little consideration and a piece of cork. In Adelaide, a correspondent signing himself Est Mobus in Rebus, that is, everything in proportion, proposed a beer bottle cork, for instance, as a hatpin muffler, while Perth's Daily News added the nicety of a silk or satin covering to the cork. A report came from Dusseldorf of a woman ordered from a tram car by the conductor for her menacing hatpin, who solved the problem and kept her seat by producing from her shopping basket a small potato, which she stuck on the offending point. In England, in 1909, the temperance campaigner, Lady Hope, invented a hatpin substitute. A light and springy metal bandeau, fastened inside the crown of the hat, which secures it on the head and yet cannot be felt by the wearer. <laughs> I'll bet. It sounds like a headache waiting to happen. At any rate, it never took off. The breakthrough came in France around 1910 with the invention of a small scabbard or sheath which with just a slight twist or pinching motion, fixed to the point of the hatpin. And the beauty of it, literally, was that this metal sheath, known prosaically as a hatpin protector or guard, was available in a range of decorative shapes, thus making both ends of the hatpin ornamental. Here, surely, was the hatpin hazard solved. And yet, two years later, hatpin protectors were gathering dust in Australian shops, sales having been woefully small and commentators and correspondents to the papers were wondering how long unguarded hatpins are going to be allowed to menace the well-being of everyone in the neighbourhood when point protectors can be bought for threepence each. At the end of 1911, Adelaide's Register tried flattery to persuade wearers to pull in their hatpins, like this. The capital opportunity offers for the fair inhabitants of the city of culture to display the good taste and good sense for which they are justly celebrated by initiating a reform which common sense dictates and safety demands. And should flattery fail, parochialism just might do the trick. The Register went on. If Adelaide should start the reform, it will soon be followed by the aesthetically less important cities of Melbourne and Sydney. In Perth, around the same time, the Daily News took a more threatening tone. If their own good taste will not make women, and girls especially, guard their hatpins, no one will regret a law that will force them to mend their ways. This, then, was what a sufferer, that letter writer at the beginning of this podcast, meant when he said it was high time that action was taken. And indeed, Australia's first hat-pin ordinance was just around the corner. In January 1912, the Sydney City Council adopted a bylaw to this effect. No person shall, while standing or walking upon a public way within the City of Sydney, wear a hatpin which protrudes in such a way as to be a source of danger to any person. Unlike Chicago, the Sydney City Council lacked the authority to police hatpins on trains and trams. And, asked the Sydney Morning Herald, why were only standing and walking stipulated? What if a woman sat or ran in a public street with a hatpin protruding? At any rate, Sydney's action set off a cascade of municipal hatpin laws in capital cities, suburbs and country towns all over Australia. Before the end of 1912, protruding hatpins had been outlawed in Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart and Launceston and in the Townsville Daily Bulletin, an advertisement for Horn and Peterson, the old reliable jewellers, pointed out that the wearing of pin protectors is compulsory in southern cities and before long that law will be enforced in Townsville too. Their hatpin protectors were priced at a shilling each, quite a leap from threepence. But it was a seller's market now. When the Sydney bylaw passed, supplies of hat-pin protectors in that city sold out in just a day or two. In Launceston during 1912, you could get protectors at one shilling and threepence each, very knobby and quaint they were, in the shape of boomerangs, swastikas and Tasmania. Now, after the Sydney City Council passed its bylaw, Charges were laid against a number of negligent hatpin wearers. Their appearance in court and the modest fines levied on them were well publicised, and it was supposed that that would be that. The point having been made, hatpin protectors would unfailingly be worn. But while the action seemed for a time to have some salutary effect, the brazen hatpin was soon just as prevalent as before. And so a blitz was staged on eight hours' day when thousands lined the streets to see the procession. More than a hundred women were booked that day, and in due course they all appeared, all hundred plus of them on the same day, in the Central Police Court. According to a report that came down the wires to the Melbourne Argus, the defendants, many of them young and wearing the most up-to-date headgear, did not appear in the least depressed by their environment. Some laughed and joked with each other, with as much nonchalance as if they were awaiting the ringing up of the curtain at a theatrical performance. Some of the city councillors, though, felt uneasy about women with errant hatpins being compelled to suffer the indignity of attending the police court. They urged that a court be set up in the town hall to deal with breaches of city bylaws, such as having omitted to wear a hatpin protector or having swept a footpath after the prescribed hours. One imagines a woman might find herself in the frame for both offences if she were caught wearing a rampant hatpin and a scavenger skirt. In Adelaide, which now had its own hatpin law, the press couldn't resist a dig. Sydney women are evidently more careless and less law-abiding than the women folk of Adelaide, who are far too good economists to risk running foul of the law in a way that would mean feeling in their pockets for money to pay a fine, where once the deadly hat-pin point protruded, one sees now only neat protectors. That was in October 1912. In November, a piece in the Melbourne Argus carried the headline Unprotected hat pins fines in Adelaide and here it says Out of consideration for their feelings, the first nine women charged under Adelaide's bylaw had their cases heard in the children's court. Courtesy of the register, we learn that the infringements against them had been issued by an inspector W Shakespeare. Where all those charged in Sydney had pleaded guilty, their Adelaide counterparts, some of them, put up more of a fight. Mary Clara Tilly insisted that her hat was so big that no-one could have got close enough to be poked by the pin. Florence Greer claimed that the protectors must have fallen off her hat pins and she said she could hardly be expected to feel her hat every five minutes in Rundle Street to see whether they were on. Mrs Clara Melbourne admitted that when Inspector Shakespeare told her to pull her hat pin out, she instead pushed it in. "'I could not walk down the street carrying my hat in my hand,' she said or I might have been arrested for a lunatic. The magistrate, Mr. Jepp, ventured, gamely, It seems to me that the hat-pin you're wearing now is a very long one. Is it used for any other purpose? To which Mrs. Melbourne replied, Angrily, said the register, No, but it might be. Fine five shillings plus costs, or else seven days imprisonment, she said, I shall go to prison then. You may have noticed that I've not mentioned a Melbourne by-law. Nope the sovereign city of the South had been dragging its feet. Only in April 1913, 16 months after Sydney, did Melbourne get around to passing a hat-pin law, and then only after what the Argus called a laughable discussion in the council chamber, the elderly councillor Crespin couldn't see the need for such a bylaw, but he was concerned by young women's lack of petticoats and the wearing of what he called pneumonia blouses, he explained and modesty in the attire of women in the streets causes much pneumonia, and it is also responsible for the wave of immorality that is sweeping through the country. The Argus report here inserted the stage direction in brackets, laughter, and then to great laughter, Councillor Crespin went on, I shall not be surprised if in a few years you find girls walking down the streets in tights. Renewed laughter. Councillor Gardiner expressed himself astonished at an elderly councillor, like Councillor Crespin, decrying the ladies of Australia. There were cries of shocking and loud laughter. This, said Gardiner, was a reflection on the ladies, to which Councillor Davy rejoined, It's only a reflection if you get the light behind them. After still more hilarity in the Benny Hill vein and over Councillor Crespin's objections, Melbourne's hatpin bylaw by law was passed. And the Melbourne City Council also took a laggardly they might have said respectful, approach to enforcing the new law. For months, inspectors were instructed merely to warn women with exposed hatpins, and it would be December 1913 before the first prosecution was brought to court. The defendant, a nurse named May Hussey, had displayed two unguarded hatpins and a bad attitude and was fined ten shillings plus costs. And the magistrate had only to mention the maximum penalty of ten pounds, the Argus reporter observed, for every woman in court to put her hand up to her hat and feel the pins apprehensively. May Hussey's attitude to her accusers was described as resentful to an extent, and there was an element of the same in the newspaper commentary that followed the advent of the hat-pin by "'Women were forever having holes burnt in their skirts "'by falling ash from men's pipes,' said the Western Mail in Perth. "'How about a law mandating the use of pipe guards?' And Broken Hills Barrier miner pointed out the risk to women of the smouldering ends of cigars and cigarettes, which lie about the footpaths. Why only the previous week in Argent Street, a lady's light muslin dress caught fire from a cigarette end which had been carelessly thrown down? And the Sydney Morning Herald's page for women responded to that city's hatpin law with a plea for equal justice under the headline, "Hatpins and Tram Steps. A few men have been stabbed or scratched by hatpins and a bylaw has been passed forcing women to cover the offending points. Hundreds, no, thousands of women have been injured by the high tram steps and have asked again and again to have them lowered. But the powers that be have ignored or laughed at the complaints and the steps remain as high as ever. Are we to conclude from this that man's welfare is of much greater importance than women's in the community? Tram steps were still perilously high when I first used them in the 1970s. Lucky for me, modesty no longer required that I swaddle myself in metres of broadcloth and maintain a ladylike demeanour in the face of sudden jerks. Hatpin laws and fashion had their effect, so that by the outbreak of the Great War, Perth's Sunday Times was able to declare that the hatpin horror has vanished from the trams only to be replaced by the knitting needle terror. There are sure to be some cases for the eye doctors if enthusiastic amateurs will persist in trying to knit socks for the departing troops aboard crowded trams and trains. Sock knitting, of course, requires needles with points at both ends. Still, hatpin laws remained on the books. In Melbourne, for instance, Council Bylaw Number No. 127 would eventually be rescinded as part of a wholesale regulatory overhaul In 1989. But such laws were rarely enforced after 1914. During the war years, a council inspector in Perth should have known better than to demand of a young matron from whose headgear protruded a sharp steel point, Where's your protector? At the war, she replied, Where you should be. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria. Australia, and it's produced by the implacable Mrs. Bradley, literary agent and muse. You can find more episodes of Nothing on TV on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or TuneIn, and why not subscribe while you're there and have fresh episodes appear like magic in your podcast feed. Visit my website, com slash nothing on TV or just Google Nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There you'll also find links to Trove newspapers, as well as a stack of other resources that'll help you find what you're looking for on Trove and generally to delve into its marvels for yourself, just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.